0: My Father, your word tells us in Paul's letter to the Corinthians that the, the Old Testament, or the Jews who refused to enter into the glories of Christ in the new covenant, read the Old covenant with a veil over their eyes, so that even as they read of the truth that anticipated Christ, even as they witnessed the ministry of Christ, even as they Witnessed the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and that the grave was empty They saw no glory They saw nothing that drew out of their hearts worship and faith and obedience and praise You said later that the God of this world had blinded the minds of the disobedient of the ungodly of the world So they could not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ But Father that's what we ask you to do for us To show us the glory of Christ, not only when we're here gathered, not only when we sing, especially here, but each day as we wake and spend time in your word, as we pray, as we read, as we think and meditate, we ask that you would show us the glory of Christ, that you would transform us from one image of glory to the next, that you would renew our spirit though our outer man decays, that you would increase our hope, that you would conform us to his character. These things we ask in him who made it all possible, our Lord Jesus, you through your death, your resurrection, and we pray in your name, amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, of course, to the book of Ecclesiastes as we are coming to the end of this great uh, book. We are in chapter 12 again this morning, which is the last chapter, so that's the end. So we will find ourselves there this morning for one more week and then The intention is to complete the book uh, next week, and then uh, we'll move on from there. But Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, which we introduced uh, last week. And in order to introduce this week, I I would make note of this. There are two things that are, are universal to humanity, that are universal to everyone, but at the same time, though they are universal, though they are undeniable, though they are intellectually uh, understood and affirmed are at the same time really in our felt reality as it were denied or at least pushed to the side as though it were not real and as though it were not true certainly not in a way that it would transform our life and those two things are this dying and death dying and death or we could say old age and death that is to say more simply the completion of this world that, that our time here is temporary If there's one thing that man does not like to think about is anything beyond the immediate. And we find that to be true in our age, probably more than any other age. Uh, It's it's a part of fallen man to do that. But in our age, simply because we have an endless means of distraction and endless opportunities to think of anything but the end, to think of anything deeply at all, for that matter. But Scripture does not allow us to do that. There is a novel by Leo, Leo Tolstoy, uh, that I read recently it's, uh, it's called The Death of Ivan And I might pronounce um, uh, the last part But Ilyich The Death of Ivan Ilyich It's a short little novel And, and really in this novel The, I, the idea is he, he talks about the death of this man named Ivan He was a prominent uh, man And he's now in the last stages of his life Of a very painful death A slow death Really in his prime uh, In many ways and he talks about his experience, and in one part he says this. Ivan Ilyich saw that he was dying, and he was in a constant state of despair. In the depth of his heart, he knew he was dying, but not only was he unaccustomed to such an idea, he simply could not grasp it. He could not grasp it at all. The syllogism he had learned from Kaisveder's logic, Caius is a man, men are mortal, therefore Caius is mortal... Had always seemed to him a correct, to seem to him correct as applied to Caius, but by no means to himself. That man Caius represented man in the abstract, and so the reasoning was perfectly sound. But he was not Caius, not an abstract man. He has always been a creature quite, quite distinct from all of the others. And he captures there the thought that as this man was lying on his deathbed, this fictional character, but this man was lying on his deathbed. He had affirmed the reality of death, as we all must. He had acknowledged it was true as a logical conclusion. It was something undeniable. But had never taken that reality into himself as though it were possible for him to experience what he had seen so many others experience, and yet there he was, lying on his deathbed. Something that he knew in part of his torture, at least in the story of Tolstoy, that others were simply not willing to acknowledge and kept referring to him as sick, He'd get better, but he knew different. He was dying, and death was around the corner. And in many ways, that illustrates the way that mankind thinks about death. We distract ourselves. We think of anything but it. We realize that it's true of others. We have parents that die. We have friends that die. We see death all around us on the news, but we never actually think of death as a reality for ourselves, as a possibility for ourselves, and therefore, we never gain the wisdom that God intends us to from it. But Scripture does not treat death that way, and life does not let us ignore this reality. God calls us to look it squarely in the face, not only when we are locked in the final days of our life here, but also in our youth, in the time of life, which we could say is in the time of opportunity. And what is that time of opportunity? It's what he introduced this section with. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And by doing so, face the reality of the end of your life and the temporary nature of life with realism, but also with hope. And so that's what it calls us to do, and we'll attempt to do this morning. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, let me, let me read it, and then we'll get into the passage itself. He it says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them, before the sun and the light The moon and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, and the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will rise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the will at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and their spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. We looked at last week the first part of this verse, which really sets the theme, and that is the exhortation to remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. In other words, in God, embrace God's reality, embrace God's purpose, embrace God's presence, embrace God's truth during the time of your youth. Do not let those be days of immaturity and foolishness, that live as though there were not a day of accountability, is to live as though there were not a God who made you, who designed and affirmed his very purpose for your life, the God who rules over it sovereignly, the God who is behind all of the mysteries of his providence in this world, which has been a theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And while youth is the focus here, while youth is the main idea here, it can be broadened out in principle really to say this. Remember your creator while you have time, while there is opportunity, while there is the possibility of knowing him and living whatever time you have on this earth with a purpose that is consistent with his own. And so remember also your creator in the days of your youth and then he gives what will take up he will take up the theme of the rest of this passage remember your days in the your creator in the days of your youth because those days are few and they will come to an end whether we deny it or embrace it they will come to an end and so he says remember your creator in the days of your youth and the second point is is because youth is passing passing or we could say because death is coming He describes it in this way, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Now you'll notice that he uses a term that he's used many times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He says these days are evil. These days are evil. He's not necessarily talking about the corruption of those days, in other words, that the end of your years will be more corrupt and flagrant sin than other days or even of some epoch of time in the nation of the history of the world or of Israel. He's saying the days themselves are evil. So evil is being applied, applied to this, the fact that the weakness and the characterizations that he will give, that is evil. Now, why would that be evil? They're evil because they are not a part of God's good creation, They're they're evil because God created man to live, because God created things good, and yet sin has come in and corrupted that. So they're evil. Everything that is associated with death, everything that is associated with sin is evil, and he uses that word in a variety of nuances throughout the letter, but they're all sort of flowing out of that one reality. The world is not as it should be. You are not as it should be. Life is not as it should be. It is not as God made it and intended it. And so therefore, these days are evil. They are evil. And the evil specifically here that he refers to is the deterioration of our humanity and ultimately its end. The physical demise that happens to every person that ultimately ends in death. And in that sense, there's even a, a, a vague sort of shadowy hint of what Jesus would say in John chapter 10 when, he, when speaking of the work of Satan, he is a thief that comes to kill and destroy. And in fact, that's what he did when he tempted man into sin. And the result of it is that what God created good, man has yet sought out many devices and ruined. Now that's a hard reality for many to... And for many to grasp. And we see, of course, examples of that throughout our culture, and you can go throughout the history of the world. People tried to defy the effects of aging. To try to hold on to their youth There's fanciful stories about the fountain of youth And and people would desire to find it if they could Why? Because youth held all the treasures All of the promises It held the key to our happiness And everything that we love And can experience in this world And, And so there is no fountain of youth And yet people desperately try to And some in pathetic senses As we all see those who get too much plastic surgery And it has the opposite effect of what they desire but it's really sad beyond the the silliness of it, is merely this, that they're trying to hold on to something that they cannot hold on to. And we see that some resist death by simply trying to ignore it or make light of it. Some even approach death with a kind of hatred and a kind of animosity and anger because it's leaving the things that they love. There's a story told of this one Lady, uh, She was an atheist And she f- approached death in this way And one describing her Actually her son uh, Described her in this, this Her experience in this way in part Her sole hope consisted in medical And scientific data And in the treatment plans of her physicians Since hope based in any other source Was of no value She felt so acutely The despair and loneliness Of entering into everlasting nothingness Weeping in panic as she neared her death, she told her nurses she was dying with the implication that the whole thing was horrific, incomprehensible, and absurd. And as he goes on to talk about this, the the reason that she found it such is because everything she loved, everything that was dear, everything that was real, everything that was precious was here. The idea of leaving it over this great evil of death was simply to her untenable. That's a futile anger, of course, because it's coming whether we we like it or not. Well Solomon gives us a much more positive view, but not without or not in any way by denying the realities yet that come with the experience of death. And so he says, these years are described in this way, when the the soul of the one who experiences says, I have no delight in them. I have no delight in them as I had delight in the earlier years of my life. I have no delight in them. And this is the reality of aging. There's no delight for at least two reasons. One, because aging brings the loss of vitality, the loss of opportunities, the realization that life is coming to an end. Secondly, there's no delight because there is the loss of the ability to even enjoy the pleasures and delights of creation as one used to, and even that comes to an end. And so there is no delight in them as the delight that youth brings with life. And as he describes the inevitable realities of old age and the process of dying, it is true as well that some experience this in different ways. Some experience disease, some experience handicap, some experience loss and loneliness. Some are vital and have strength and energy to a long life, even to the very end, full of optimism and know very little diminishing in that sense. But however one experiences it, these realities are true, and they all will... And in what he ends with in this passage, in death, however it comes, in whatever manner and whatever degree it's experienced in its difficulties, it is coming. And so he gives a general description then of what he means by this, that I have no delight in them. Each of these descriptions is meant to stand in contrast to what he just said, to the youth, to the vitality and the vigor and so forth of youth, to the optimism of youth. To the pride of youth, as it were. This is meant to stand in contrast to bring a soberness to it, a realism, a wisdom, which is his main concern. Now, before we look at these specifically, a note we will note that it is understood that these images, while drawing from experiences and pictures and things that the readers would know, are metaphors. He's describing something here. He's describing again the demise, the deteriorating part of the body. And so people see these in a variety of ways. And it's really hard to be dramatic in some, dogmatic in some of the specifics of it. But we'll attempt to give a, an overview of what he's trying to capture here. What we will do, won't do, is go down the road that some have and see this as almost entirely as allegory, which, for example, one wrote this, the sun may be the spirit, the divine light of the body, the moon, these are what he mentions in verse 2, the moon as the reason that reflect the light, the stars as the senses that give a dim light in the absence of the sun and moon, which is just only in the mind of the one who wrote those things, certainly not in the mind of Solomon as he's writing this. And we would be reminded as well that as we look at the realities of the coming death, it is not meant to leave one in despair, but there is a word of encouragement and hope. Remember that the reason he's saying this as is a justification for why it's so important to remember God in the days of your youth. In other words, we are to look at these things and consider it because if you can read them and understand them, there's still time to live wisely. There's still time to live wisely. Wisely. And yet though that is the encouragement, it is also a warning and summons again that says your life here, your experiences are temporary. And really then if we were to look at just a, an exhortation that flows out of that, I was thinking of for 2 Peter 3, he says if all these things are to be destroyed this way, what kind of people ought you to be in holiness and conduct looking for the blessed hope? In the same way we could look at our death in that way as well, how it ought to affect our lives Well, let's look at these descriptions. In verse 2, he describes dying. He describes dying. He says, Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. Here he's looking at celestial lights that reflect... The account of creation, he's referring to what is visible to the eye that make all things visible through the light uh, that they provide. They are darkened here, he describes them. And it hints at the idea that as one progresses in old age, that dread and the sorrow of life coming to an end, the prospect of death is daunting. What was visible and bright, what used to give light in life, what used to provide a path of understanding is now darkened. That light is gone. And he says the clouds return after the rain. There's a sense here in which, borrowing from another, that we could say pleasure and hope are inversely proportional to age. That's a great statement. Pleasure and hope are inversely proportional to age. In other words, as age progresses, the pleasure and the hope in life is incrementally diminished. We don't really realize that in youth, but that's the trajectory all around just as a footnote here this is though he's not referring he's referring primarily to the end of life there there is a sense in which people experience that and get the first uh, taste of it in what is sometimes known as a midlife crisis some of you may have been through that you reach a certain point in your life where you realize you're at another phase of life all of those opportunities of youth are gone you're now looking at what is Uh, in all likelihood, the second half of your life and the accomplishments that you wanted have not been achieved, that the things you thought you would have already experienced, you have not. And there seems to be kind of a dullness and a a droning on of life that one anticipates. And so people do foolish things. They do sinful things. They buy cars they can't afford or they don't need and, and go down the list stereotypically. But at the very least, some go through a period of depression and discouragement here even more so is that's the kind of ideas that it's it's realizing that the end has come and and what used to be light and hope and opportunity is now darkened those years of youth have passed by and the end is near. He captures this emotively in that last phrase, and the clouds return after the rain. Usually, of course, crowds come before the rain, and particularly in the Middle East, the clouds would come, the rain would fall, and then they would disperse, and the sunlight would come out, and there would be brightness, and there would be refreshment after the rain. In Florida, we used to get storms. Some of you all know who've been there. You get these afternoon storms, and the clouds come in, it rolls, it can rain very hard, and then it all goes away, and there's just the steam coming up off of the cement. Y'all are nodding your heads You know what it's like And so he's, it's the normal course But here that's not what happens He says the clouds return after the rain And what's striking about this statement Is that the dreariness continues Even after the rain has passed And the description is meant to capture that emotive sense of looking at the end of life. The body ages, life dwindles down to the end, the expectations of setbacks being uh, uh, pushed through, but the brighter day's coming is over, and it's like one setback after the next, after the next, after the next. It never seems to get any better difficulty after difficulty. Many in old age experience this, particularly in terms of their health, in other ways as well, but primarily in health. They go to the doctor, they get one report that's negative, and they go back, and then it's negative again, and then it seems like there's no hope, and the idea of returning to the full experience of health gets less and less and less, and simply take in the reality that they no longer have that opportunity to return to what they once were. And that's the the sense of sobriety then that he gives here. In verse 3, he takes this further. He says, In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones and the idle, because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dim. The imagery that he gives here is of a great household, of a household. All of these are people who would be found in a a household where there are servants, where there is life, where there are feasts. And it's a comprehensive picture, really, He gives, interestingly, two examples of male members of the household and then two examples of female members of the household. In each one of those groups, there's one of common position and one of high position. And the idea behind that is to give a sense of the totality of it. In other words... This is a reality for all of humanity Whether you are rich Whether you are poor Whether you are a servant Whether you are a ruler Whatever your position and station of life This is what you will endure And that's a general sense behind that The watchmen are the caretakers of the house The mighty men are the rulers and princes The grinding ones are the female slaves And those who look through the window Are the elite, as it were Who have a life of leisure And yet, here they are experiencing the fleeting vanity of this world what do these mean what's this what's he getting at here let's just look at these briefly in the day that the watchmen of the house tremble watchmen is literally the keepers of the house these are the servants of the house the workers of the house the footmen or whatever you will of the house and here they are said to tremble why do they tremble The image you may be picking up here because of the sense of fear or weakness or it could be their inability or increased difficulty in fulfilling their normal responsibilities. Life has gotten harder. They they tremble at the thought of what they have to do and their weakness in accomplishing it. The mighty men, again, are men of honor and position, once proud and standing tall, providing leadership and strength. Now they stoop. It's a picture of weakness and a sense of degradedness. Of the physical decrepitness and feebleness of an old age, those who were once strong are now in need of assistance themselves. Many see here a metaphor for the body. Uh, there's many suggestions, but I'll give you some common ones. They see the watchman as weakened arms or legs, the mighty men as weakened arms or thighs. One suggests, however, that trembling refers to the tremors of the jaw of old age, and either way, it pictures the decreasing abilities of the body. Come. He goes on and he says, The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. As noted, these grinding ones are female slaves whose responsibility, most likely referring to those who was to grind, grind grain and provide food for the household and for feast and, and so forth. But now they stand idle because they are few. The imagery here could be of diminished activities, diminished re- opportunities for feast in the home, and so they have not as much work because there's not as much activity. The loss of workers, in other words, there are few, could be to death or sickness. In either case, the picture is the usual rhythm of work was slowed down. There is a lesser glory. As a metaphor for the body and what happens to us physically, very often it's seen that the grinders refer to teeth. And that, you know, as they get older, that your teeth diminish. They're fewer. We kind of miss this, but that was uh, not as uncommon uh, in those days. As a matter of fact... Solomon, uh, in describing the beauty of his bride, makes this statement. Uh, He says in verse 2 Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ooze, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. In other words, she's really beautiful because she has all her teeth. And she was in her youth. It was not as common then if someone couldn't care for it, even more so here in old age that without the dentistry, especially in the things that we have now, uh, that was something that went away is teeth, the ability to eat and retain the beauty. He then goes and he says, those who look through the window or through the lattice, literally, again, this refers to the upper class, probably penteses, at least women of the elite class, women of leisure, they're not the ones out and bound to daily do the work He says they, they grow dim or are darkened They lose their ability to see what is on the other side And in that measure then to enjoy it What they used to look at gladly As a metaphor for the body It's the ideas that sight goes away As one approaches old age There's the weakened eyesight The, the inability to take in the, the world around And to see others That's a common problem as we're familiar with Even in our day the overall picture here is of the physical decline, again, that comes in old age. The vigor and strength of youth is declined. And then he continues it in verse 4. He says, The doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. The doors on the street, of course, the closing of entrances to homes as evening comes, which, again, may be due to fear, may be due to the inability to keep them open. It happens while the sound of the grinding mill is low. The, day, the end of labor, the close of day comes... The doors being shut, it suggested, might picture the mouth and the sound of the grinding mill as low as either the loss of the clarity in a person's voice or the loss of teeth, again, and the ability to speak as clearly, the ability to communicate with strength as one used to do in their youth. Others suggest that the imagery pictures a sense of isolation and removal of the usual activities of social interaction All of those are possible, but again, it's the picture of the demise. He goes on and he says, And one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. One will arise at the sound of the bird. Speaks of being easily awakened. The bird makes a slight sound, but one is in sleep, and the the slight little chirp of a bird uh, takes them out of that sleep and slumber. The daughters of song will sing softly. Literally, it's all the daughters of song uh, will be brought low. They'll be brought low refers to the diminished sound of the songs that used to fill the air. The imagery is of the restless sleep that often attends old age, such that the slightest sound can awaken even the chirp of a bird. The deceased or decreased sense of hearing of the music of the daughters of song. And again, the overall imagery suggests the loss of ability to enjoy previous pleasures like music or sleep, which comes more easily in youth and in a time of strength verse 5, he starts to move inwardly again. And he says, Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags along, and the caperberry is ineffective. What does he mean here? Men are afraid of high places and terrors on the road. He uses fear, this, this, this precise term anyway, three other times in Ecclesiastes, and it's used in each of those cases as a fear of the Lord, of reverence and respect and honor to the Lord. Here he uses it more in its basic sense of actual fear. It's the, the term used to speak of Adam when he was afraid when God was in the garden after a sin and he tried to hear, hide himself. Here he says men are afraid, not out of reverence, but actual fear. Fear of what? Fear of danger. Fear of the inability to defend oneself against attackers, which were common then, or fear of trouble that may occur and what will they do? You can think sometimes of older people in older age. They're very nervous. They're very nervous about anything that could go wrong. They're very nervous about what might happen to them because they don't feel, they feel helpless. There's a sense of I don't have the same ability to deal with these problems as when I was younger. And some prey on that kind of fear. Some evil people prey on that kind of fear. The illusions are the apprehension of being outside the safety of the home with a sense of defenselessness against dangers or difficulties that one may face. The almond tree blossoms, which is a tree that produces white flowers in its blossoms and is universally understood here as being a reference to the whitening of the hair, which happens to uh, when you get older, for all males anyway. It doesn't happen to women as often. The grasshopper drags himself... That was a joke, right? Because they fix it. It does happen. The grasshopper drags himself along. It's a picture of the the quick and the agile insect laboring to walk and may refer to the increased effort of movement in the weakened state of age. Some see a reference here to sexual anatomy or... Or more generally, a picture of weakness that makes carrying a large load difficulty. In either case, the idea is the weakness and difficulty of movement is in view. You don't get around as easily as before. Things are harder. Work is harder. Movement is harder. Going places is harder. It's more difficult. That spry and the step isn't there as it once was. The caperberry is ineffective. This is a term, a caperberry is sometimes used to to speak of what stimulates the appetite. And so it may be an idea of the, the loss of hunger and not eating as much. And that certainly is true to experience from many in old age. Most likely, however, most commonly, the caperberry was an aphrodisiac. And it may be a reference here to loss of sexual vitality, sexual function, sexual potency that was once enjoyed in youth, in the enjoyment of a husband and a wife, is now gone. It's not to say interest is gone, but the capacity for physical enjoyment is gone, and the pleasures that were possible earlier in years are gone. That's most likely here, which I would just put a footnote. That's why people should not put off marriage until later. (laughs) Get married when you're young. Enjoy all of the blessings that God has. And then he goes, and he takes it to the end. At the second part of verse five, he says, man goes to his eternal home home, While the mourners go about on the street And the end of it all is death And this is the capstone to everything The body deteriorates The vitality of youth fades away And then comes the end, death And as noted Although the process is experienced In various degrees of intensity It all ends in the same place For everyone That is the grave The end of life here Under the sun It is the point when the eternal condition of someone is settled. There's no changing. Whatever it is, it is. All possibilities of something different have come to an end. Life on earth is over, and where you are is where you are. The condition after the other side of the grave is the condition on the other side of the grave. It's settled. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. It's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. And what do they do? A man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about on the street. This could refer primarily to family and friends and the the mourning that they have, the sadness of the loss of a loved one, the grief that is very natural and very real and very right to experience when someone we love dies because they are someone we love and death is again an intruder and an enemy. We should feel that loss, we do. It could refer to the professional kind of mourners that were common in that kind of culture that were hired to go and express grief so that none would be left without somebody grieving their death, without somebody acknowledging the sadness of them no longer a part of this world that's mentioned in many places in the Old Testament. Probably it's a mixture of both, which pictures on the one hand the sadness of life coming to end, which we all... Experience. And on the other hand, it shows the profound sense of life's vanity when people need to be hired to express grief. And whichever it is, it's a grief that's passing, it's a grief that's temporary. Eventually, life moves on, the world moves on, the individual is laid in the grave, everybody says their condolences, some final words are said, there's a loss felt in the heart, but life moves on. Weddings still happen, children are born, jobs are taken and lost. Accomplishments are sought, joys are to be had and taken away, life moves on. And the mourners go about in the street, while the one that they mourn is gone, and in many cases soon forgotten, and such is the vanity of life. And he picks up at that again on verse 6, again using the imagery, striking imagery. Some of you may have an italics, remember him, because He's picking up on what he said earlier. You'll have the actual term there translated as before is there. It's one of the markers that goes through the passages. And they're all reasons why to remember your creator in the days of your youth. And here he brings it to a conclusion. Before, remember him, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. And the pitcher by the well is shattered and the will at the cistern is crushed. What does he mean here? Well, the picture is... Of a golden bowl falling to the ground and crushed, a silver cord no longer able to perform its function. Most likely it's the picture of the silver cord holding up the golden bowl, the chain snaps, the bowl falls, everything's in crush. The idea is rendered useless. It's broken. It has no more function. The same by the well, shattered, and the will at the cistern is crushed. The the pitcher that would hold the water is No longer useful, it's crushed. The cistern might be the will that was a part of the well. No longer able to draw up. The idea is it's all come to an end. It's done. It's over. Life is over. Life is done. There's nothing else to say about it. No matter how much it's fought, no matter how much it's hated, no matter how much it's embraced, no matter how much it's sought to be ignored, it's there. It's there. It's there. Right in front. One said this so too, when the cord of life is cut, the individual falls to the ground, never to rise again. But he doesn't leave us there. Look at verse 7, and this is the third. This is to gain perspective on life's fleetingness. Verse 7 Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And here the full reality of the fall of man and the presence of sin in this world is brought to its conclusion. It's exactly what God had promised. And it happens over and over and over throughout the history of man. It's what he said in the midst of his curse in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 3 by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return Solomon picks on that up here you came from dirt and you'll return to dirt all of the things that seemed important in this life in the vitality of youth are all now put in the light of their true nature nothing All of the glory of man that receives such praise from other people is all of a sudden meaningless. It's gone. And that praise from others won't save you in the moment of death. That's the idea. You came from dust, you'll return to dust. Again, if I could use that imagery of Tolstoy's Ivan Ilyich, he said this as he was getting, as he was further, getting further and further uh, into his illness and closer to his death. He says this, And in his imagination, he called to mind the best moments of his pleasant life. Yet strangely enough, all the best moments of his pleasant life now seemed entirely different than they had in the past. He had new lenses. He goes on to say later, The person who had experienced that happiness no longer existed. And again later, As soon as he had got to the period that had procured the present Ivan Ilyich. All the seeming joys of his life vanished before his sight and turned into something trivial and often nasty. And later in this he goes on and he asks himself, What if my entire life, my entire conscious life, was simply not the real thing? That takes up the theme at the end of the novel, really. As he's coming to realize this, as he's coming to realize that all of the advantages that he had and the joys weren't really the real thing and he's looking at his family who's still living in a measure of denial and he's watching their life and he sees that you're not in the real thing. You're living a lie. You're living in shadows. You're living a dream that doesn't exist. Because you are not realizing that as I am, one day you will be. That where I am, you will be. It's easy to ignore that now, but a day will come when it can be ignored no longer. And again, this is the conclusion of the fall of man. This is the end of it. This is the reality of sin. This is a witness of God against the world is not as it should be of his judgment. And all are susceptible to it. And in one sense, the physical death is merely a picture in the broadest sense of man being separated from the, the blessing and the goodness of God that he had intended. As a matter of fact, after he covers them with garden uh, garments, it says in... Genesis three twenty two. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the, guard, the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction, listen, to guard the way to the tree of life. It was appointed now for man to die, no longer to access, to have access to the tree of life, the tree of life that would have been the source of his continual life. It's gone, excluded from it. It's guarded. Death is now the only reality that's possible for everyone who comes from the loins of Adam. It's, it cannot be escaped. And again, it's an unnatural process. I think that's partly why when people get older and all of us who are getting older still have a kind of self-perception of our youth in terms of our perception of ourselves of being 18 or 20 or whatever, even though our bodies no longer bear witness to that youth. Death and sadness, again, is an intruder. And you wonder, what is God's perspective of it? And I want to at least mention here And I think if we were to see God's perspective of it, well, ultimately, we'd see what he did at the cross. But we'd get it in the perfect humanity of Jesus, the perfect God-man. And I'm just going to mention this. And this is the idea that it's not what God created. And we're familiar with the story of Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus. He'd heard the report was Lazarus was sick. He waited a few days waiting for Lazarus to die. After Lazarus was dead, he went the, with his disciples to the tomb, knowing full well of what he was going to do and for what purpose he was going to do it. But then as he comes, he's approached by Martha and Mary eventually. And they're, they're like, couldn't you save? Save and saved him. And he goes to the grave and of course he could have. And it says in verse 33 of John 11 that when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. And then it says, and then he wept. People looking around said, See how he loved him. We often think of that passage in this way that Jesus was so sad about Lazarus dying. Some take it that way. He was so overwhelmed with the emotion that he himself became a little sentimental and weepy. But that's not what the language says at all, actually, quite the opposite. The language for, and the terms for, he was deeply moved in spirit speak of his anger. He was angry. It was a sadness. He was angry at what death had brought. He knew what he was going to do. He met, let him die on purpose because he was going to raise him. He wasn't sad about that. He wasn't sorry at the loss of a friend. But he was deeply moved and angry, even in his spirit, at the reality of death. And he was troubled. He was troubled. Because death had brought such destruction, death had brought such sadness, and in many cases of those there, such hypocrisy of the refusals to see the truth. That's God's perspective on it. And so... Here it is at the end and Solomon really sets two realities then side by side. In one sense the perspective of death causes us to look back and see all the attainments and experience of this world are in themselves as he ends in verse 8. Vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity. It makes us take a real evaluation of our lives and you could say what are the things that I care about? What are the things that I value? What are the things that are important to me? This death makes us consider that. Some will say family, some will say friends, and all of those joys. But then the answer to that would be, but what are you going to do at the end of it? What are you going to do about your sin? What are you going to do about your sin? What are you going to do about eternity? Should you know the one who created life and the one who will bring it to account? So the reality of Death then should give us wisdom. That's one reality. Yet in another sense, the reality of death reminds us that there is still time. There is still a possibility to live for those things which are eternal, to live in harmony with God's purpose. There's a sense in which it's a call to repentance. Remember your creator. There is still time. Your creator still calls. Your creator is still there. Your creator is still willing. Your creator is still the one who redeems. Your creator is the one who can bring you into his blessedness. And it is possible as well, too, to live life that way and come to the end with a sense of hope. As a matter of fact, I, well, I'll turn to one passage. There are those who live life to the praise of God and they come to the end with the praise of, God, or praise of God still on their lips. The concern for God's purposes still on their hearts. Psalm 71, 9, just for one passage, says this. Speaking in prayer to God, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails, he says. And then he says later, I will continually hope and I will praise you yet more and more in his old age. My mouth will tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. I will tell of his mighty deeds. He'll make mention of your righteousness and yours alone. You've taught me from my youth, and I still, in my old age, declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, O oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to, and to all who are to come. It's possible to reach old age that way, in death. It's possible to reach old age, like Paul said to Timothy, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race. I fulfilled what God has called me to. I have been faithful to what he laid before me. And he says, now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, and not only for me, but for all who have loved his appearing. And in this sense, it should give us a hope. In this sense, it should give us a reality of seeing what God accomplished in the gospel to increase in wisdom. But ultimately, we're viewing Solomon within the canon of Scripture within the totality of everything that God has revealed about his redemption. And in that sense, the death then is meant to point us beyond the grave. A focus on the grave is not to leave us there, but to make us think of what comes after. What is the purpose? Ultimately, even to the resurrection of the body. And again, that was the promise embedded in the judgment of man, particularly the judgment of Satan, but in this judgment of the fall of man into sin. He said, one is going to come who's going to destroy the works of the devil. Genesis three fifteen. You will crush him on the hill. He will crush you on the head. In other words, he will destroy what you have brought. He will dis- you brought sin and you brought death, but God who created man, man who bears his image, will be rescued by the sovereign purposes of God. And what you have done, while it will bring destruction, it will ultimately be overthrown. It will be destroyed. And so within the canon of Scripture, this most gloriously takes the form of the coming of the Son of God. Who took on the flesh of Adam and Eve. Who took on the flesh of humanity. Who became according to the eternal purposes of God and the eternal plan of redemption before He spoke one word of creation, which was to redeem those who would fall through the suffering and the death of Christ who had to be made like his brethren so that he could redeem them so that he could be a propitiation in his flesh in his blood for the sins of his people so that he could bear the wrath that they deserve so that he could die the death that they deserve so he could suffer the consequences of their guilt that they deserve, that we deserve and he came not merely to redeem our spirits But the glory of it is is that he came to redeem our bodies as well. He came to redeem everything. The incarnation and the resurrection itself is a theological affirmation bar none about the significance of created glory and our participation in it. That even the Son of God himself would forever bear the marks or bear in his own person in some mystery of the incarnation humanity, flesh, Redeemed, that redeemed his people, that is exalted and glorified in the presence of God, that his people will be conformed to. Man was not created to be disembodied. We weren't created when when God breathed into life, into man in Genesis chapter 2, but then said the separation is going to come between that life that I breathed into him and the body that I gave to him That's not to say that the ultimate state is to be disembodied. Quite the opposite. That's not the view that Scripture gives us. The physical reality of man's soul and spirit and the physical expression of his person in the world was always designed to be bound together. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, I desire not to be unclothed but clothed. I don't want to be naked. I don't want to be some disembodied spirit. I want my resurrection body. I want resurrection glory. I want to live in a resurrected world that God creates. Someone said the physical body ought not to be viewed as an inconvenient appendage, but as an, eternal, as an eternal component of the real self. And so ultimately the reality of the grave and the function of Ecclesiastes within Scripture, particularly in light of the New covenant and the coming of Christ, is to point us to the glory of our Savior. And Paul says this in 2 Timothy 1:10, He says that the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, shall remember. At the appearing of our Savior, he abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The only answer for death, the only way to rightly view death, the only way to approach death with any sense of meaning and purpose, with any sense of wisdom, is to embrace its reality and realize it's a reality that's only overcome and conquered and given its very definition by Christ. Christ. It's definition in that it is a consequence from sin. It's definition in that it is the last enemy to be defeated by him who gave life and brought life through his death and resurrection. Through Christ. Who also rose from the dead. Appeared to men ascended to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, brought the inbreaking and the dawning of the age to come, the beginning of the completion of God's redeeming work, which will ultimately be in a new heavens and a new earth, after a resurrection of the righteous and the dead, in which all will receive either judgment or be confirmed in their blessing eternally. And in that sense, then, what was lost and what Solomon causes us to face, the loss of access to the tree of life, The loss of all that God designed this world to be is restored in its fullest sense and we're we're dragged by by the very words of Scripture to think about it in that way and ultimately for a Christian to have hope. Listen to these words in Revelation as we come into the table. In Revelation 22 it says, And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life. Death is no longer there, he's already said. No more mourning, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow. The fullness of God's purposes revealed through our union with Christ, his glory that we gaze upon and that we are conformed to. Now it is. There's life the tree of life that man was banished from in the garden is now what we have access to bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations there will no longer be any curse and the throne of god and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him there's no cemeteries in heaven They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It speaks of the intimacy that he has with his people. There will no longer be any night and they will not have any need of the night of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And then he said, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his slaves the things which much soon take place. Blessed is he who takes and heeds the words of this prophecy of this book. And so we are those who have heeded the prophecies, the words of that prophecy, who have believed the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope, who have taken seriously the reality of sin and of death and of redemption and of the resurrection and of the coming kingdom and eternal judgment and eternal life. And have thrown the lot in with Christ by faith, have trusted him and God's testimony to him. And we anticipate him. So we don't need to face death with fear. Certainly the process of death is not fun and comes with its challenges, but we face death with hope. The hope of being with our Savior, of receiving a body that will be resurrected to be with him forever. If you are outside of Christ, if Christ to you is from the range of what is offensive to interesting to good, but certainly not holy, if you are outside of Christ, then the wisdom is this. Consider your end. It's that simple. If you go home and you get distracted with the things that distract you, if you go to this week and give your attention to the things that you usually give your attention to without thought about the reality of life as an end, and that is the highest mark of foolishness, and there will be no excuse, and the end will come like a thief in the night to you. Now is the time to remember your creator in the days of your youth to ask this question, what will I do about my sin? And the answer is, is what God has already done in Christ. And that's what we celebrate in the table. So as the men come up and pass out the elements, uh, let me pray and they'll come up and then we'll remember the Lord's table together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a savior We look behind us and we see an empty cross. It's the symbol of the Christian faith because it is the picture and the symbol of where our Savior died. Where our sins were atoned for. Through his suffering. Through his death. Through his offering himself as a guilt offering. Our guilt is removed. In him our sin is condemned. In his resurrection, our life is made new. Therefore, the cross does not have our Savior on it. It's empty because he who are in heaven, our Lord, at the right hand of the Father, right now as we await your return. And the table reminds us of this. We proclaim your death until you come. May we come with joy. May you reveal to us the glories of the gospel. May you conform and confirm within us the glory of Christ. Amen.